John chapter three, John chapter three, we're gonna be looking at the second half. Okay, hold on, I gotta get it together. <laughs> we're gonna be uh, looking at the second half of uh, this chapter, uh, verses 22 through 36. Um, this past uh, summer, my family had the joy of being able to go to Scotland together as a family. And one of the things that we did there that I'm so glad that we did was we took a tour of one of their most famous castles, Edinburgh Castle. And when we did, I'm glad we got a tour guide that went through with us when we were there. And I'm so thankful because it made like our understanding of all of it so much better. And this tour guide, he was great and so effective at what he did. And the reason he was effective was, was because I don't remember much about him. Like, I remember he was short, which is saying a lot for me. He was short, he had a big full beard and a Scottish accent. And that's about all, of, all that I remember about him. But I do remember a lot of what he told us about the castle. I remember that the cannons there weren't designed for land. They came off of ships and they were put there because the queen was trying to impress someone with all of it. I remember that there were people held in the dungeons there all the way up to World War II. I remember the church that sits kind of in the middle of the whole area that's outlasted even a lot of the walls. I remember all of the unsuccessful attempts at invasion and taking over this particular castle. I remember all of that. And the reason I remember it is because he did his job well. He did a great job at what he was supposed to be doing, which was being a tour guide. And I couldn't help but think about that this week as I was preparing for this sermon. That's our job. What a beautiful picture of the Christian life. We are tour guides. Uh, this morning, we're gonna see that Christ has given us eternal life. Remember last week, John three sixteen. God loved the world in this way. He gave his only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but we'll have eternal life. We've been given, if we've placed our trust in Jesus Christ, given eternal life for this reason, so that we might spend our lives making much of him. So that we might spend our lives as tour guides, pointing to him. Let's read this passage. Actually, we're just gonna read the whole thing. I think sometimes that's really good for us to do. Just keep scripture together and let it stand out in all of its beauty. Father, open our eyes that we might see wonderful things from your word this morning and that you would be glorified in your precious name, amen. Verse 22, start there, it says this. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and he was baptizing. And John also was baptizing at Ainon near Salem because water was plentiful there, which by the way, I love that ministry strategy. Can you imagine? It's like, John, you know, why are you baptizing here? What's going on? What's the meeting? He's like, there's lots of water. <laughs> and the people were coming and being baptized. For John, this is John the Baptist, had not yet been put into prison. Verse 25, now a discussion, that's another word for an argument, 
Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, Jesus, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. An exaggeration, by the way. Verse 27, and John answered and he said, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him. He rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Verse 30, he, Christ, must increase. I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who's of the earth belongs to the earth and he speaks merely in an earthly way. But he who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard and yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, affirms this, stakes his life on this, that God is true because he whom God has sent utters the very words of God for he gives the spirit without measure. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey, which notice there, he's, he's contrasting belief with does not obey. That's interesting. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. All right, verse 25 and 26. Here we go. What do we have going on here in these two verses? First thing we see is we see the problem. And the problem here is jealousy. That's the problem. Jealousy and comparison. And we're not, in verse 25, exactly sure of all the details of this disagreement. But that's okay. The Bible doesn't tell us what all those details are. That's not the point of this passage. What we know is what results from this. And what results in verse 26 is jealousy. John's disciples are comparing ministries with Jesus and his disciples. They're like, look, everybody's going over there. Everybody's being baptized. Whose baptism is better? What if everybody just leaves us and goes to Jesus? What then? They're comparing ministries. Comparison in our life and ministry is deadly. It's deadly. Uh, maybe you've experienced this um, when you've been in the market to buy a new car. I've never experienced this, but maybe you have. Maybe you have. Maybe it's like, okay, I've got, I need a car because my 16-year-old is about to take mine. And so I need to go find one. And I have a particular set of things that I'm looking for. And I have a particular price range. And then you get to the dealership and they say very gently to you, well, those cars are kept out back out of public sight. Come back here with us. And you go back and you're like, okay. And now your expectations become a little bit more realistic and it doesn't become, I don't want any rust on it. It becomes maybe just a little rust. And then, and then you're like, okay, I think I've decided. I know what I'm going to get. I found it. And then you walk out front. In fact, I think intentionally they walk you out front and you see that person driving off the lot in that brand new truck. And the first thing you say is, I want a new truck. I 
one. Four-wheel drive? And your wife says to you, why do you need four-wheel drive, Nate? I mean, you. Like, why, why do you want four-wheel drive? I'm like, well, just in case we have three feet of snow. We live in Indiana. You never know. Okay? And she's like, well, if there's three feet of snow and you're stuck, I have four-wheel drive. I'll come pull you out. And I'm like, I don't want you to come pull me out. I want to switch it to my four-wheel drive so I can get out on my own. That's what I want. And the seats, the seats that cool and heat your nether region, like that too. Like, I want that. And, and I want my truck to, to talk to me and tell me what a good driver I am and how it loves being owned by me. Like, if you start my truck up, it will make sounds, but they're ungodly. <laughs> like, that's... Do you see? Do you see how it starts? Right? But, but it doesn't stop there. That's the problem. It gets worse. Well, why do they deserve that truck? And I don't. Well... Why did God give them the money for that and not me? And, and, and it gets even darker. Well, you know what? I'm holier than they are, right? I spend my money appropriately. They obviously don't, or they wouldn't have spent it on a new truck. And this just goes spiraling down as we compare and as we're jealous. And it is deadly. And it it can creep into our lives subtly. And if it does, it will exhaust you. It will distract you from what is primary. And eventually it could even ruin and destroy you. And it is a deadly weapon in the hands of the enemy. And here, that's the problem right out of the gates. So what's the solution? What's the solution? Well, the solution that we're going to see here is humility. Humility is the antidote to our jealousy and our comparison and even even our pride. You remember the biblical definition of humility that we use often around here is this. Humility is thinking about ourselves rightly, rightly, in light of who God is and in light of who we are in Jesus Christ. And if you look down at verse 30, John the Baptist gives us his definition of humility here. He says this, he, Christ, must increase, but I, I must decrease. A really uh, woodenly literal translation of this, it's kind of like Yoda talk a little bit from the Greek. It would be something like this. For that one to increase is necessary. For me to become less is necessary. The heart behind jealousy and comparison is I must increase. The heart instead behind humility is he must increase. He must increase. So so how? How does Jesus increase? Like, what does that even mean? All right, well, we'll start with what it isn't. Here's what it isn't. He does not increase because we beat ourselves down smaller. Okay, I think sometimes we treat humility like pounding a nail into wood and we are the hammer and the nail. And I have to just destroy that nail to drive it lower and lower and lower and lower. Hold on. You remember last week? John 3:16. God loves you. You have value. 
He knitted you together in your mother's womb. He made you in his image. He redeemed you at the cost of Jesus's crucifixion. He made you a child of him. He's given you his spirit and he's now gifted you for purpose. What makes us think that God intends for us to beat ourselves up to make him look more glorious? Humility is thinking rightly about ourselves. And that's different from hammer and nail. Recognizing who he is in all of his glory, it actually allows us to think rightly about ourselves. And we, we don't beat ourselves up. What we do instead is we hold him up, right? We point to his worth. I decrease with his increase. And true humility, it's not thinking less of myself. It's thinking more of him. He must increase. And I think this verse 30, it's in a particular order here for a reason. So how does this happen? How does he increase? How is he made greater? Well, remember the tour guide illustration. The tour guide doesn't determine the castle's worth. The tour guide doesn't determine the castle's history or beauty or grandeur. The tour guide doesn't have that power. So what does he or she do? The tour guide points to that worth with their life, with their words, and with their work. Okay, think of it like this. Think of it like a telescope. And I know, I don't, I don't even know if telescopes are a thing. We have an app for that now. But like telescope, right? You got the small end and the big end. All right, a telescope does not make things. It does not make that star bigger. It doesn't have the power to do that. So what does it do? It focuses your attention on it and it helps you to see it for what it is. We don't make Jesus bigger. We focus attention to him. We point to him. You see, we get inside out and upside down when the tour becomes all about us and not the castle. Or when we flip that telescope around so that the fat end is pointed right at us and we walk around and we tell people, look through that small end and see what's most marvelous in the world. He is greater. He must increase. And it sounds simple, but because of our sin, it takes a lifetime to learn it and apply it. And John the Baptist here, he's gonna give us a masterclass on what that looks like. Uh, verse 30 is the center of this section. And it kind of holds two halves together, really. So we're gonna look at the second half actually first. Verse 31 there through verses 36. And the reason we're going to do this is I want to answer the question, why must he increase? Why must he increase? Because that actually supports what John shows us in the first half of this, okay? So why must he increase? The first reason, verse 31, is this, because he is superior. He's superior. Verse 31, he who comes from above is above all. 
He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and he speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He is superior. The word become flesh. He is superior because he is God and we are not. In fact, I'm a poor substitute for God. We, do you realize we can't handle our own worship? We will never measure up to our own expectations. And living our lives in his place at the fat end of the telescope, it will either destroy us eternally because our worship was always in the wrong place or at minimum it could destroy us functionally because we put our faith in Jesus, but then we try to spend our life grabbing hold of deity, don't we? Control and priority and praise. And you will fail as your God, why? Because you were never intended to be him. You are not the creator, you were created the creature. You can't be him. Humility recognizes the proper place of Christ as the only worthy object of worship. Why must he increase? Because he is superior. Second, why must he increase? Because his words are superior. His words are superior. Look at verse 32 there and following. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony, he sets a seal to this. God is true, verse 34, because he whom God has sent, Jesus, utters the words of God. He comes from heaven with the very words, the revelation of God and the revelation from God. Jesus is the ultimate sent one from God. We're sent not with our, our own words, with his words, God's words. His words are superior. Third, his fellowship with the spirit is superior. His fellowship with the spirit is superior. Look at the second half of verse 34. For he, the father, gives the spirit without measure to the son. The spirit is poured out on Jesus completely. We saw that happen in his baptism a few weeks ago. He's poured on him, it says, without limit. Jesus is empowered for ministry and he is in perfect fellowship with the spirit as only the second person of the Trinity could be. You realize when we come to know Christ, we receive God's indwelling spirit at our salvation. And he comforts us and he sanctifies us and he empowers us for what he calls us to do, but not like Jesus. <laughs> His fellowship with the spirit is superior. And last, why? Why must he increase? His authority is superior. His authority is superior. Verse 35 and 36. The father loves the son and he has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life now. 
Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. He is King Jesus. The father has given him authority over everything. He has authority to give eternal life by his grace. And he has the authority to judge those who disobey and rebel and reject him. Why must he increase? Because Jesus is better. He's superior in every way. He belongs at the center. He deserves our right worship. So in light of, in light of all of those reasons why he must increase, how does John the Baptist respond to Christ in his proper place? Let's go back. Verse 27, so they come. Well, look at him. Look, everybody's going to him. Everybody's baptizing. Verse 27, John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from above. John's first way of decreasing is by saying, everything I've received, everything we've received is a gift. Any ministry fruit or success It's a gift from heaven. My ministry, my role, however small or large, is a gift. However many followers I have or don't have, a gift. However many gifts I have or don't have, talents I have or don't have, it's a gift. We wrestle with jealousy when we forget this. And we begin thinking that our success in life or in ministry is our own doing. It was my talent, my hard work, my ingenuity, my, 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 my. It wasn't. It's a gift. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Used it before, love it. What do you have that you didn't receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it. Everything's a gift. That's how John decreases. He remembers that. Keep going. Look at verse 28. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I said this, and he did back at the beginning. We saw it. I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Next way that he decreases is he rejoices in his role. He goes, I'm not the Christ. I'm just a preparer, I'm a voice, I'm an opening act. I have a role to play, but I am not the leading act. That has kind of a ring to it, doesn't it? I'm a voice, I'm an opening act. I have a role to play, I'm not the leading act. He is, he must increase. He keeps going, look at verse 29. The one who has sent the bride is the bridegroom the friend of the bridegroom, friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Okay, what's happening here? Well, in scripture, we often see God's people pictured as the bride and Christ as the bridegroom in this coming together, in this new covenant marriage, all right? And there's like, all kinds of Old Testament passages of scripture and New Testament that bring this in. But if you wanna study more, there's three particular ones, okay? The first is Isaiah 62. 
Isaiah 62 says, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Ephesians chapter five is another one. Revelation 19 is another one. So what's John saying? John's saying, okay, I'm the friend. We would call this the best man, right? And at this point in time, the best man on the wedding day was the one that took care of everything. He took care of all the wedding logistics of the day, all the way down to this. He would guard the bride until the groom got there. So this is an important role. And John the Baptist is saying, as the friend, he's happy to stand back, hear the vows, celebrate these two coming together. He plays a role in bringing them together. He plays a role in the celebration, but the bride and the groom are center stage and he rejoices in that. Have you ever, ever been to a wedding where the best man or the maid of honor somehow became the focus? Whether out of foolishness or jealousy or too much alcohol, what happens? It gets weird and awkward really fast, doesn't it? Why? It's not about you. You're making it all about you. This is about the bride and the groom. Step aside. And John the Baptist is saying, I have a role to play. The role that I play, however small or big, it's a gift from heaven. And I am thankful and happy that Jesus is the center of it all. He must increase. I must decrease. So let's do this. Let's ask a question. I want you guys, maybe this week, ask yourself this question. And I think it's actually one of your small group questions. And so there you go. You're getting ahead. How does my life and ministry demonstrate the supremacy of Jesus? How does my life and ministry Demonstrate the supremacy of Jesus. Does the way I live say, Nate must increase or he must increase? See, verse 30 in this passage, it's not just some cute statement here made by John the Baptist. This statement describes the purpose and the posture of the Christian life of followers of Jesus Christ. So we've got to ask ourselves, do we live like Jesus is greater than we are? Uh, our verse this year as a family is 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Remember what the glory of God is? God's beauty, his perfection, his majesty on display. When we glorify him, when we magnify him is what we're doing is we're pointing to that glory. We're saying he must increase whether you eat or drink or whatever you do in every aspect of our lives. We are meant to be holding up Jesus as better. So are we doing that? And get specific Hey, don't leave it in generalities. Look specifically at aspects of your life. So let's, let's just do this right here this morning together. So first, let's apply it to this ministry. 
Radiant Bible Church. How does Radiant Bible Church say he must increase, not we must increase? Uh, Here's a few statements that'll help us orient ourselves that way. One, Jesus is the chief shepherd of this church. Pastors here, elders, staff, you, me, we're just pointers. Like we get to play a role, but he is the center. Next statement, the local church is about his fame, his glory, and his plan, not ours. Don't make it about you. Third, we rejoice that we are one of many local churches seeking to permeate the West side and the world with the hope of the gospel. Guess what? We aren't the only people that love Jesus and are trying to spread the gospel in the world. We're not. We love Radiant. We love how ministry is so imperfectly done here. We are grateful to be part of this in-process local body of believers, but we are not about selling you one church over another. We are about pointing people to the Savior of the world, period, exclamation point. We are one piece to the puzzle. We don't and we can't reach the world alone. And there are gospel proclaiming, biblically faithful churches right here in our community and around the world that we want to cheer on and say, go brothers and sisters, we're on the same mission, even if we might do things just a little bit differently for the fame of his name and not ours. I mean, for goodness sakes, it's in our name, Radiant. Who's Radiant? He is, right? To what extent are we radiant? To the extent that we point to his radiance. And that's it. Last last question, let's do this. Let's apply this to our lives personally. How does our life, my life, demonstrate the supremacy of Jesus Christ? Does my life say he must increase or does it say I must increase? This week, maybe, maybe in your evaluation, think about your time, think about money, think about relationships and ask some hard questions of yourself in this, right? I did this this week with, with time. Does my time say he must increase? And often, here's where we end up going with that. We're like, well, I spend 20 minutes in the Bible in the morning, but I spend an hour watching TV. So I should switch that. I'll spend an hour in my Bible. I'll only spend 20 minutes watching TV. And don't get me wrong, that can be a helpful test, all right? But we're talking about heart posture here, not just numbers on a spreadsheet. Um, So here's where the Lord took me this week. Um, Amy and I, uh, we have three children. They're down here, down front. I'm gonna talk about you, sorry. Three children uh, right now between the ages of 12 and 16, all right? And Amy and I are convinced that our only role in life right now is to be a taxi service for our kids. That's it. That's what we exist for. We take them to, we take them to work, we take them to school, take them to their social life. We don't have one, but they sure have one. We take them to serve here at in our faith family, we take them to the grocery store again because they've eaten us out of house and home. 
And this week, I just found myself just grumbling about this, just mad about all the hours that we spend in the car taking them places over and over and over again. And if, if I must increase, then I choose to not spend my time in the car all the time. If I must increase, then I'm gonna spend my time that I am in the car grumbling about it. Now imagine, imagine if instead I said, how can I make much of Jesus with this time and with the circumstances that he has given me? Because we've said, we've said as parents, we've made the decisions that these things are important for their life and for their formation and for their growth, right? So if we've said that, then we're gonna take them to that, which means that my existence right now involves a lot of car time until Kami takes my car and then it's gonna involve a lot of car time for her. (laughs) That's what we've said. So then, How do I make this time and this circumstance about the glory of God? How do I show that he must increase with my time with my kids in the car, with my wife in the car, by myself, with with the Lord? Imagine what this would look like in our relationships. If we oriented our involvement in the relationships with our lives around, he must increase rather than I must increase. Boy, I'd probably talk a whole lot less. I'd probably stop trying to be right all of the time. I wouldn't compete in my relationships. I wouldn't look for hidden meanings and what people are saying and everything. Instead, maybe I would be quick to listen, quick to assume the best, quick to forgive, quick to consider others more significant than myself, quick to speak the truth in love and not in vengeance. Why? Because I want to point to Jesus Christ. I want to point to Christ with my whole life. I want to point to Christ with my words, with my thoughts, with my energy, with every fiber of my being. Why? Because I get to play a role. I get to be part of his plan. I have value. I'm his child, but he is supreme. He is better He is the creator. He is the savior of the world. And he is the only one in this relationship worthy of worship. And I get to spend my life, the life that he has given me, making much of him. And there is no greater purpose that we could have than that. He has given us eternal life so that we might, hear this word, so that we might joyfully spend our lives and all of eternity making much of him. John here in verse 29 and 30, my joy is complete. My joy is now complete, why? Because I've seen the bridegroom and the bride come together, because I've seen someone step into relationship with Jesus Christ, because I've seen someone recognize that he is the one that's worthy of worship and not, and not me. He's like, my joy is complete. And that all starts by recognizing his worth as individuals and as a church and worshiping him. And then, we can think rightly about our role. He must increase. We must decrease. Father, would you help us 
to learn that. I, I find so much, so much of my life and my energy and my time is spent sinfully trying to position myself on the fat end of that telescope. Forgive us for seeking to, attempting to step into that position that only belongs to you, Lord. You have saved us. You have reached down by the power of your spirit and you have softened our hard hearts and drawn us to yourself. And when we are worthy of nothing, you've saved us. Father, you sent your son to stand in our place. You are worthy. You are incredible. You are lovely beyond all description. You are faithful and good and just and magnificent. You are the creator. Lord, we would be foolish to spend our lives trying to point to ourselves when you stand there in all your majesty saying, I am worthy. So would you help us? Would you help us individually this week to look at our lives and see where we have made it all about us and rather to seek to make much of you? And would you help us as a faith family to do that? Would we be radiant to the extent that we point to your radiance, Lord? We love you. We need you. May you increase in our lives and may we decrease in Jesus' precious name. Amen.